Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is a really perilous time for people that believe in market capitalism. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Throughout 2019, CapEx has been working on a project with the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, which is an anti-poverty charity, on rebalancing Britain, looking at how to tackle the long-standing imbalances in the British economy um, and the gap between towns and cities, uh, rural and urban areas, and the different regions of the UK. Now, a big focus of that project has been how to improve the lot of low-income voters, which is an area that the JRF have done a lot of research on. So for this week's episode of Free Exchange, we brought together JRF's Executive Director, Claire Ainsley, along with pollster extraordinaire, James Kanagasurium. Uh, James is a partner at Hanbury Strategy, and the man whose data strategy was crucial to the Scottish Tories storming the SNP barricades back in 2017. And we were also joined by CapEx's deputy editor, Frank Lawton. I began by asking Claire about just how important low-income voters will be in the coming general election. Low-income voters are really important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because of their electoral significance. So low-income voters are more likely than voters on other income bands to say that they don't really feel very well represented, they don't affiliate to a party. And we think there's been a real vacancy around the party appealing and actually... The work that we've done with Hanbury and with other political analysts has shown that there's real electoral advantage in pitching to low-income voters. The other reason is just that it matters. It matters more than politically. It matters to our country that if you've got that many people who feel unrepresented, dislocated from power, we think that's contributing to some of the divisions that we see. But we also think that if parties could really understand who these voters are and how to appeal to them, that's part of not only those parties achieving greater electoral success, but those voters being represented, which is better for the whole country. And James, I mean, how has that picture changed over the last, say, few election cycles in terms of allegiance, people shifting from one party to another, or in fact just saying none of the above? Hmm. So I think the last uh, 15 years uh, are a very extraordinary period where we're beginning to see a kind of great political rotation in terms of how people politically identify from certain groups. And the focus of low-income voters, I think, is a part of that. It's a subsection of a larger picture change. So it's probably worth just taking a step back and thinking about what that rotation is. Um, Principally, since around 2005, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, around that period in time, what we've seen is that the Conservative vote, which 
for years has been principally a rural and quite affluent vote. It started to rotate to the extent that it's becoming more rural and less affluent. And what we've seen with the Labour Party is the inverse of that. So it's a vote that typically uh, dominated the working class, was uh, a vote in which low-income voters were split heavily for Labour, and was a diverse vote as well, so much higher in cities and in urban areas. And I think what we're seeing is the Labour vote is becoming more affluent over time, but is also maintaining its kind of, as it were, diversity and its presence in cities. What does that rotation mean? What it means is the dividing line in politics uh, has shifted, as it were, from income, high income versus low income, conservative versus labour, to rural versus urban, which is uh, a separate division, has a different political map. And this election and the EU referendum and the 2015 election are part of that story. What that means is is that um, low-income voters and high-income voters who previously would all principally break strongly for one party rather than another are now the new groups of floating voters. So if your two bases are rural voters and urban voters, your two swing groups are uh, much richer voters and much uh, poorer voters. And that's what, we're, that's what we're seeing. So there's a larger context about that. Yeah, I mean, do you have a sense of roughly what proportion of the electorate that applies to now? In terms of the, the rotation, no, there aren't, there aren't fixed numbers on that. Uh, a lot of this rotation is not just about individuals, it's about areas as well, mm. which is something that's often lost in the political commentary. So rural affluence is something that was the bedrock of the Conservative vote for many years, as was the opposite, which is effectively... Uh, diverse areas with lack of money was principally where the Labour vote emanated out from. And what we've seen is that rural uh, areas have had a slower uh, median growth in income versus certain areas in the city. So principally, certain areas have taken on characteristics uh, which are different. And we've seen that, I mean, broadly, just look at what's happened to, say, East London versus what's happened in areas of, say, North East Scotland or Lincolnshire. Um, median incomes are up in East London and areas like that. The schools have become much better. Transport links have got much better. Whereas other areas of the country, principally in rural areas, their baseline level of affluence might have been the same or lower, but the rate of increase and the improvements in those areas have been a lot smaller over time. So this differential treatment between city and village and town is, I think, critical to this rotation. And we talk about... Um, low-income voters, I mean, how would you, Claire, how would you kind of define that? I mean, whenever you do this, obviously, there's a degree of kind of arbitrariness about where you set the line, but do you have some kind of rough parameters for who we're talking about, what kind of households? Yeah, we tend to use a relative measure uh, because it is in proportion. If you're talking about low-income, you can only describe that in relation to what the median income is. So we're looking at essentially the kind of the bottom fifth in income terms. We always use a relative measure because... It tends to change over time in terms of what actually is a kind of decent standard of living. We essentially describe uh, being in poverty or being on low income as uh, not having enough to make ends meet. We use a variety of different definitions through our low income voters uh, report. Uh, And James can tell us about the method that we used for identifying within constituencies because that has never been done before is to actually look at local areas and how many people are low-income voters within a constituency. Yeah, so the specific definition we used in the report was uh, we would consider a household low-income uh, low-income voter household if the gross income was less than £17,500 once you had adjusted for housing costs, which 
I think is is look that's a both that's an absolute figure in that sense, um, and you can draw the line in a number of areas. But for the purposes of of a report, that's where we drew the line. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about looking at this group of voters is we're not just talking about the traditional working class. And I think often when you look at the debate, and actually I'm really pleased to see low-income voters rise to the fore of both of the major parties' pitches to voters, you could almost think they're sometimes talking about the traditional working class. And actually what we're trying to say is this is a much more diverse set of groupings that make up what it means to be on a low income in Britain today. When we talk about these uh, low-income voters not being represented, do we mean in terms of policies that are being pitched to them? Do we mean in terms of the people who are doing the pitching? Quite what does it mean in your report to, to be represented or what would being represented look like? So we would take that from when you ask people how they feel. So uh, if you look back at British social attitudes, so JRF has commissioned the National Centre for Social Research over the last few years to do an income analysis of British social attitudes. We started to see these trends well before Brexit, so this is deep uh, standing issues where people who were on the lowest incomes were saying were much more likely to say that they didn't feel that any party represented them or they didn't know. So rather than seeing the picture that you might have thought of where you actually see a much stronger representation amongst uh, low-income voters by the Labour Party, whilst Labour was still ahead amongst that group, they had much less of an affiliation than when you looked at higher-income voters. So it's, it's really based on well, what do low-income voters say, and they're the ones that are saying they don't feel represented. But is there a kind of inflection point that you put that down to? Is it a gradual process that has... Um gone on over the last few decades i mean some people for example go oh well it's because of eu enlargement in some of these areas it's immigration or whatever but i mean what what do you think is behind this trend so i'm going to change around sort of income and class a little bit but it's easier in a sense to tell the story from a class perspective and you can actually see the dip away of working class voters from labor and you see that by about the late 1990s so you see that start to pull away and it gets essentially lower and lower over time, and then you start to see support for the Conservatives increase to the point where you've actually got that completely crossing over now. So I think one of the things, one of the points we would want to make is this isn't particularly about Corbyn or Johnson right now, even though we have data on it. This is about long-term social and economic trends and the political parties failing to catch up with an economy that has fundamentally changed and what it means to be working class today has fundamentally changed too. Yeah, I mean, Claire's absolutely right. This is a systemic thing that's not really to do with the personalities of this election. So, I mean, there's some recent YouGov public polling out where the Conservative lead over the Labour Party is bigger amongst C2DEs. Yeah, horrible 20% term, or something, isn't it? Uh, versus yeah. ABC ones, if you yeah. think it's okay to divide the British public into two groups. Um but broadly, that is something that is uh, a trend that we see across the developed world. So a lot, of, a lot of people can be very British-centric in this analysis. But if you look at what's happening across the continent, if you look at what's happening in America, and look what's happening to centre-right parties, principally, they have become a lot more attractive to low-income voters. I think some of that is to do with deindustrialization and the loss of union power and how uh, people who are traditionally low-income from cities no longer affiliate with the Labour Party. That is a really slow-burning process. If you think about what made up a low-income voter today versus in the 1970s or 80s, today these are people who have different types of jobs. They're desk jobs, they're white-collar jobs, they're, they do very different things, and the ha- kind of family units and the system of housing they have is totally different to what they were in the 70s or 80s. 
It, it might be slightly surprising to hear that, say, working-class voters were moving away from the Labour Party when Tony Blair was in charge, and they've continued to move away when Jeremy Corbyn's in charge, two quite different politicians, mm. stereotypically sort of pitching in different directions. So does that almost suggest that there's nothing the Labour Party can do, that they've tried sort of the, the Blairist move and they've tried the, they're trying the sort of more socialist Corbyn move? Depending on what country you look at, I think there's a number of interesting templates. I think if you're the Labour Party, you're basically at an inflection point, as you said. I think on the one hand, I think you've got the case study of Mélenchon in France, where as a left party, you go radically to the left, and it becomes very much a programme about workers, about austerity. You might think similar to Corbyn, but potentially much further to the left, if you can uh, (laughs) consider that for a second. And then you have a second model, which is to ride the wave of your change in demography. Um, So in English, as your voter base becomes uh, more graduate heavy, as it becomes more affluent, to effectively run with that and play along that curve. And that would mean a shift in in policies, I think, uh, away from kind of traditional socialism and more towards kind of social liberalism. Um, And that the Labour Party has to decide whether that's a conscious or unconscious thing to do one, one or the other. In terms of the parameters, obviously we've got an election in you know a few weeks' time. One of the main kind of dynamics of that is this idea that the Tories have to scale the so-called red wall. Um, how much of the kind of vestigial attachment to Labour in those post-industrial, should we say, areas is there still? Yeah, well, we saw quite something quite interesting happen at the 2017 general election. So it's not necessarily the case of decline and onward decline. We saw, obviously, a bit of a return to two-party politics. We saw people turn out in higher numbers amongst those in a lower income in 2017. And by and large, Corbyn was the beneficiary of those votes. So voters on a low income, um, Labour increased their vote amongst voters on a low income, but so too did the Tories make some gains too. Mm. So So what that tells us, I think, is that there is... There is certainly a battleground to be worth pitching for. Labour cannot ultimately find its way back to power without understanding who those voters are. Um, In terms of how we don't know, none of us know at the next election whether ultimately what is going to be the deciding factor when someone gets into that polling booth. There isn't an election that so far that would tell you that Brexit will be that factor. And so there's a lot riding on the fact that um, you know, obviously, Conservatives are hoping that that will be enough to push uh, Labour voters uh, who voted Leave over the line. When we look at the 2017 general election, which some of us might have thought was a Brexit election, the analysis that um, Professor Matthew Goodwin and Oliver Heath did for us showed that voting low income were torn, and they were torn between their concerns about their living standards and their concerns about values. And ultimately, their concerns about their living standards were a bigger factor in what drove their vote. But ideally, they wanted a party that spoke to both of those things. And we don't know how that's going to play out in this coming election. Yeah, I mean, broadly, I think um, when we've, we've discussed this before, I think what you just described, Claire, as a, as a trade-off amongst low-income voters between their social values and their economics, that trade-off uh, makes sense, I think, of what we're seeing in terms of the government and what they're pursuing. I think we've described previously the approach of the current government as an exocet missile at, at low-income voters, precisely because what they're trying to do is appeal both to the cultural values of people who are low-income, but also the economic aspirations of this group of voters. Yeah. Could it's you, very much yeah. trying to prevent. It's trying to prevent the scenario where it is a trade-off 
for lower income voters between Conservative yeah. and Labour. And what can you just unpack that a bit? And what do you mean when you talk about those cultural values? What kind mm. of thing? So, I mean, in terms of low income voters, principally we're talking about voters who might be more well predispositioned towards the monarchy, who might be more traditionally conservative in a number of areas. Um, so that would be on classic kind of social lines. But I think also we're talking about just, I think, the, the way to think about it is the uh, cultural signature of a party. So we're talking about uh, their approach to patriotism, to the flag, to the monarchy, to the cultural institutions of the UK. I think there's a, there's a dislocation between low-income voters' cultural affinity with the institutions of the UK and where I think the left today sits. And the Conservatives in the past have exploited that but I think in the future what they're trying to do is exploit that and also move their economic policy towards what low-income voters would like. Yeah, I mean, we, some people when Boris Johnson wore an England shirt before the Rugby World Cup final thought, oh, he's doing this again. And by contrast, when Emily Thornberry tweeted that thing of the England flag when she was out on the stump, it was an absolute, just a bit of a nightmare for Ed Miliband, it was at the time. Um, and it was that sense of it's not as clear cut as liberal versus social conservatism because for me it's even deeper than those things we've talked about it's that sense of um, it's that sense of the places people are part of their communities and what comes up so strongly from all of the work that we've done uh, with people on a low income is how they feel that their places have deteriorated around them that they don't feel that 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 feels that sense of neglect they want to feel a sense of pride in those places. And I think it's a mistake to characterise those people as necessarily always socially conservative or a hard message on immigration is going to appeal. In actual fact, people want vibrant, thriving communities and places. They've had them before and they don't understand why over a long period of time, over successive governments, different types of uh, you know, uh, governments and, and local authorities, why those places aren't places that they really feel that they can be part of. So I think it's pretty core to people's security and how they feel and um, that there is work available but it's not work that's giving them a good income Fe people feeling trapped and locked out of opportunities that they see uh, others accelerating and in a sense that sort of what are the, the as James said those kind of cultural signifiers the parties that are speaking to those concerns and are likely to offer something really fundamental for those people I think are far more likely to appeal to them than ones that are offering much more um necessarily say liberal appeal but those touch points are things that just don't matter to them in their everyday lives do we have any data on how then devolution would play amongst these voters because i get the sense that i did before i worked here i did a project in west midlands where i would go to various parts of the of the region and speak to as many people as possible about the, their sense of the public sphere and their sense of their their town and locality and this sense of pride came through very strongly but so did this sense of disappointment at not mm. being heard but it wasn't just being heard nationally it was being heard within these uh, towns or these smaller cities um, as if there was sort of no real mechanism through which you had this public debate about where your city goes and devolution might bring uh, I mean potentially there's this there's this nexus of things that are all, all, all pointing to in a similar direction about dignity about uh, location about pride but also about having control over people's lives and that, that is represented in the various political campaigns that we've seen over the year, 2016 referendum, 2017 general election. We see aspects of those concerns everywhere. I think devolution, it, 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 that's an interesting word, right? I think it's more about the effects of what that will bring. So mm -hmm. 
does that bring services closer to people? Will that solve the issues that people have? Will that mean that people's parks and public services in the public realm will be less shabby and more well invested in? I think if there is a concrete sense that these words, these promises, these what sounds like quite a technocratic solution actually improve the lives of people, then yes, I'm sure they, they would. But I, I don't think at this, I don't get any sense from the data if there is any that devolution is a top issue. I mean, it certainly mm. never entered any of the public polling in terms of the most pressing political issues that people have. But the things that it might address are really important. Yeah, so I agree. I think the things that you could do with devolved powers do come up and do matter to people. So if you devolve the things that top the polling that we've done on skills, um, local business rates, allowing businesses to stay open, giving support when they're struggling, all of those sorts of things come up really, really highly. Transport, obviously, I mean, it varies depending on where you live and how bad your bus networks are or your trains. Um, but certainly outside of the areas that have got really strong infrastructure, that will, will appeal when you actually ask the direct questions about devolution, there's like there's pretty low support from an English Parliament, for example. Slightly more support amongst low-income voters than there is amongst other groups, but it's not a big. It's just not something people are calling for. That's not a reason not to do it because ultimately, if it's a means to an end, and the end is people have more of a say, and they get the kind of results of what they want, and you have much more. Uh, political equality across the country that could be a good thing but the architecture of devolution is uh, frankly a bit of a turn off to most voters and just to come back a bit on the sort of the politics of all this i mean how would you say that engagement among this group of voters which we've kind of broadly identified is rising or not over the last couple of election cycles uh, yes, uh, engagement, but also, I think, lack of singular affiliation. So I think it's almost happened in a cycle. So I would say back in the 1960s and 70s, low-income voters were highly engaged and would highly identify with the Labour Party. And basically, there's been a process where low-income voters have fragmented away from the Labour Party, but not necessarily straight to the Conservatives. Actually, many of them decided to become uh, to, to fall out of the electorate. And therefore, what we've come to is a third stage, a third phase, which is now that low-income voters are less ideologically inclined towards any party, their voters are up for grabs, and they're more engaged in the process, and, and, and the result will be this election. I mean, there's a real paradox of the 2017 election, is that in some of the constituencies that uh, were the lowest-income constituencies with the lowest-income voters people there were most split between the Conservative and Labour Party, but the two-party share was at its highest. So that, for me, really, so that paradox really sums up how engaged and how up, politically up for grabs this group of voters is. But I think the attention has come because of that. But I think this is more important than what's kind of electorally expedient, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think, then, that, that we're just in a moment of sort of volatility, that at some point we'll... <coughs> loyalty will reassert itself to the parties perhaps in a new yeah. way to, to how it had been sort of in the 70s or do you just think we're now really stuck in a cycle of volatility whereby the loyalty of voters is always up for grabs well I think what's changed is what's volatile right mm. so what's not volatile now is how party affiliation by the density of an area so broadly almost every seat that is above a certain density is conservative and almost every, if you just look on a political map right almost every sing, single constituency that is small is Labour, and almost every big constituency outside the west of Scotland that's big is Tory. Um, so that's not... The volatility now is, uh, is an income volatility. Um, a better way of framing it, I think, is 
um, what will be the markers of how people vote in the future. And I think at the minute it looks like low-income voters and actually high-income voters look to be two key sets of swing voters. Yeah, and I think overall there is more of a trend towards, not just amongst low-income voters, but overall there is a trend towards more pe people more likely to switch their votes and you might say that's actually quite a healthy thing for democracy so it might be unpredictable for analysts and we might call it volatile perhaps if it makes the parties work harder then I'm not sure I think it's such a bad thing in the end having said that low-income voters are more likely to swing their votes than other income groups they're now more likely to turn out and the polling that Hanbury did for us over the summer showed that 59% of low-income voters who didn't vote last time around in 2017, and bear in mind that was the first time in 30 years that this trend in declining turnout was starting to reverse, have said that they will vote at the next election. So there is a lot for the parties to play for. What it, what it means in terms of long-term realignment depends on so many things. Um, critically, whether there are long-term changes to our electoral system that prompt all of that, or some might say respond to the changes that are going on anyway, and it's about how the parties respond now. And I think Labour is absolutely at that point where can it hold together the electoral coalition that it has had for a very long time in terms of keeping it sort of socially liberal, um, better off voters together with its uh, core vote. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I, I just want to... Talking about policies and what the parties can do, I just want to kind of delve into it a bit in the sense that when we talk about people on low incomes, we're actually talking about quite a lot of different types of people who need different policy solutions. I mean, how, do you th how can Labour and the Tories address, for instance, the needs of a pensioner with no income or, a, I don't know, a mum with two kids or something? That's quite, those are quite different questions, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And I think even... so. Also, you're not just appealing to low-income voters. You've also got to have policies that don't alienate other parts of your electoral constituency that you're trying to stitch together. So not only within low-income voters do you have, if you like, you know, not quite competing interests, but you have a number of different things going on. I think, I think partly it's about um, what you select. So partly 
parties just understanding how much the electorate are not hearing the vast majority of what they're saying and being much more deliberate about the signifiers that they're choosing. So what are the symbolic policies they want to cut through to voters? Because in a sense, they just haven't, it strikes me just that they haven't got that when they go out to one group of constituents or in, not in terms of local constituency, but in one sort of segment of the electorate, other parts of the electorate can hear it. So if you're trying to appeal to voters who haven't got a good education the first time around and don't feel like the education system has appealed to them, talking about free tuition fees, for example, may have overemphasis in policy and not really feel like you're on their side. So it's not as easy as saying you can have basically an entire lucky dip of policies and just select out the ones that you want. You need to, I think the parties need to absolutely focus their pitch on these really bread and butter issues that are popular amongst low-income voters, but popular overall. And happily, uh, Hanbury polled for the JRF, and we have published all of this data yeah. free to all of the political parties so they can see that better training, better skills offers, um, support for local businesses, um, the local businesses being able to uh, use if they get public contracts, training up local unemployed people and offering opportunity. Like it's basically, it's all in there. It's not actually that difficult to work out if only the parties would take it up. I think there's there's also I think what you're getting at, John, is is a, is there a trade off? Can you only have certain policies towards certain groups? And my sense is that the the centre left's tendency, if it is concerned with low income voters, is to focus on younger low income voters. So look at the last Labour manifesto. Right? It was it was absolutely laser focused on younger low income voters, and principally areas that had the highest number of younger low income voters saw the largest rise in Labour vote share. It was very interesting. Whereas I think the Conservatives, at least at the last election, where it cut through the most in terms of low-income voters was older low-income voters. Precisely the areas that were the oldest in the country showed the uh, biggest swing towards the Conservatives, particularly up in the Midlands and Nottinghamshire and areas like that. I think there is a trade-off. Look, I think c quite clearly the wish list of voters is getting longer. That is a... Mm -hmm. that is a that, that is a truism. There's a sense that the list of demands from competing groups of voters, and uh, not just voters, just people, is getting longer and more, more difficult to deliver, and there will be a trade-off. That makes, I think, I'm not saying we should all have tons of sympathy for politicians necessarily, but it does make their lives extremely difficult when they're presented with a seemingly endless list of often quite unachievable, mm. um, or at least unachievable in the short term, and in a way kind of voters are bound to be disappointed. I think that's a fair characterisation. Of democracy. Yeah, of democracy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of them, a lot of what I would want to see the parties doing is making, oh, this sounds so obvious, but promises that the, the, the voters are so weary of these promises that are just not delivered. Like, to me, I'm less impressed with um, the politicians outbidding each other on how much they're going to invest regionally, although go for it, because I like to see them trying to boost money into parts of the country that have not seen it. What they need to be doing is talking about the change and the difference that's going to make to people's lives and do it in a way that, you know, the electorate is a lot more intelligent than people give it credit for and do make pledges that are actually outcome-based and are going to transform people's lives over the long term. And what would that mean in the first three years? This was a question I had, how, how, how well spending played amongst these voters, or how well restraint played perhaps, because the optimists would presume, might presume that just Corbyn saying, I'm going to spend more and more and more, will play really well, but then you read reports of, 
of uh, various kind of swing constituencies or low-income constituencies, and, and that doesn't seem to necessarily be the case on the ground. To, to kind of build on the theme that Claire's just talked about, about how intelligent the population is, one of the most staggering things, I, I think, of pieces of research I came across is how public opinion and the attitude towards the state, so the support for more austerity or less austerity, a bigger state or a smaller state, is perfectly aligned to the amount of money that the government spends as a percentage of GDP. The two act in almost perfect lockstep. Almost, I mean, I remember talking about this with uh, Rob Colville a couple of years ago. It's basically homeostasis. Um, in other words, there's a perfect feedback loop. To, as the government gets bigger, people instinctively feel that spending should be less and the state should be smaller. And as public spending declines as a percentage of GDP, the inverse happens. The scenario that we're faced, so the British Social Attitudes Survey shows that shows that data going back 30 years. It's very, very clear. Um, we are absolutely in an election and in a political point in time where public opinion is pointing towards more spending, more investment. The, the, the current general election campaign where we have two likely manifestos which will be very short on austerity and probably very large on spending commitments reflects that political reality. But ultimately, that political reality is driven by the fact that public spending was reduced significantly uh, from t 2010. I get for the, pure, the economic Tory purists that debt hasn't gone down, and I understand that, but percentage as a percentage of spending as a percentage of GDP went down. It went, from, went down from about 45% to around 40%, which is enormous. That is a, that is a large-scale shrinking of the state, and... The current political environment, one in which Corbynomics is popular, one in which the political axis is tilted towards more spending, is entirely a function of, of shrinking the state. And so what we're seeing is the reversal of that. To just sort of tie these the last two things we've been talking about together, I mean, to what extent do you think voters actually have any... Um, that these kind of figures have any credibility in voters' eyes? You say, oh, Labour going to spend a trillion quid or whatever. People are just a bit like, well, it's, a, it's such an enormous number and it's so out with our normal experience that they just go kind of shrug their shoulders a bit yeah i think that is basically what how those messages are received sometimes listening to it it sounds like a brown knight budget in a way where it's spending commitment after spending commitment whether that's you know labor or the conservatives it's just these people don't know the difference between the billions and the millions mm. in terms of what that would actually do so in a sense i think we need to Almost go back to what is the change? What's the difference that's going to be made? And actually, you see you see glimmers of it. So we saw that uh, you know the kind of policies around retraining, and so they're on the right kind of territory. But political parties have got a hard job to do to be able to work their way through this. But I think they're making it an awful lot harder by talking about the process of government, whether that's the ministries or the commissions they're going to set up or the um, amounts they're going to spend, rather than saying to parents, what does this mean for you in terms of the guarantees you're going to get around your education? What does this mean for you if you've got an elderly parent? They need to talk much more clearly in terms of outcomes. So I, so I would hope that over the next few weeks we see for low-income voters the big spending commitments translate into we will always increase your social security in line with inflation. We will guarantee that there can be a job opportunity locally for you that you know can go on to a good job. Like how do you try and translate some of this pointing in the right direction, which we've not been in for a while, we are pointing now in the right direction, how do you translate that into something that's actually going to be meaningful and make really good use of the funds that the state has, has got, because that's the other thing, is that the spending commitments that are being made 
need to be really well used and really well targeted, otherwise they're not going to have the effect that either of the major parties think they'll have. Yeah, just to get a little bit more granular on the kind of, uh, on training and skills and stuff, I mean, beyond just funding, what are the kind of levers that the government can use to make it easier for businesses, for example, to train more people locally? You talked earlier a bit about public funding being contingent mm. on employing local unemployed people. I mean, are there any other policies that you might like to see? I mean, we, for example, on our, on our website, we like to advocate reforming business rates so you can invest more. And, you know, the high street would be rejuvenated but, and things I mean, like this. Business rates in focus groups mm. comes up all the time. Uh, the cut through of that. Um, it sounds quite prosaic, but it isn't because it's your it's your brother's shop or it's your cousin's mm. current shop front or his, his small business. This is something that... Uh, people think is punishing um, the kind of the way it's re-rated uh, can often seem uh, have a lack of transparency and obviously hits people right at the intersection of where they're trying to better themselves make a life and run a business um, so I certainly think that uh, re-rating business rates and making sure that they're fit for purpose in the 21st century in a changing economy right the way the way that we distribute goods and services that is that is something that would play enormously well so the way we would have asked the question in those groups would have been things like uh, ensuring that you get basic skills. You know, they're sort of fairly sort of anodyne statements, if you like, but there's a fair amount of policy thinking about how you might translate that into actual realisable policy. So partly devolving more powers to local authorities around uh, skills. But Onward, for example, funded by JRF, have suggested a retraining tax credit that could be used for low-income workers. So there's, there's plenty of policies available They've got to also pitch them at the right level because actually the way we're pitching the focus groups is the way to pitch the policies. Then it's how do you have the details about that? But there's you know there's plenty of uh, ideas out there. And what would you say, broadly speaking, was the attitude towards business as a community? Because I think one of the things that worries me quite a lot is that, especially in the Labour campaign, but also on the Tory side with Theresa May, there's a lot of kind of scapegoating of businesses for all of society's ills as if they're all Scrooge McDuck sitting there on a you know, pile this, of... This is a really perilous time for people that believe in market capitalism and uh, believe in the current system in terms of public support, but now institutional support for business. So you know, there's been lots of books written about it. And I think for years, business has small... We should divide and segment between small business, big business, and global business, I think. That's the way I think... Broadly, the public segments its attitudes towards business. And I think where the, the loss of faith in terms of big business and global business has been endemic, uh, people systemically feel that these very large businesses have uh, created a huge amount of issues in, in the economy and certainly don't necessarily improve people's lives. I think that that is a battle to come. That's not one that will shape this election, I think, at all. But it is, it is something to be concerned about, right? Because if not that system, then what, I think? Um, and, th- and that is a really, really, really important question because there's almost no thinking has gone into if we don't like business, if we don't think it delivers wealth, if we don't think that private enterprise actually produces the funds that, that is able to pay for all these very, very large lists of things to spend on, then somewhere along the line that, that, that covenant will break. Yeah, it strikes me that yeah that that line you hear a lot about a free market funding public services doesn't have much resonance if you're cutting public services yeah. at the same time. Yeah, and, and people are not hugely ideological about this either. So actually, on the one hand, uh, finding scapegoats at any time I think is a worrying um, a worrying trend. 
Um, but on the you know, people are not hugely pro-nationalisation, and that can be overemphasised. But they do want a more interventionist state. Mm. So actually, being ideologically opposed to some of those things, or ideologically trying to over-promote some of them, isn't necessarily the sweet spot of where the public are at. They want an economy that works. They like the, the rhetoric that May had around an economy and a country that works for everyone, but they badly want investment in public services. They want, they want social security to be a public service that they can rely on. They don't think that actually pulling the rug out from people is actually creating a better society. They don't mean they're hugely to the left of where we are, but the reason why some of uh, the, the Labour's economic policies are resonating is because broadly, if you look at public opinion data, broadly the public is pro a lot of those policies on the economy they want an interventionist state now the challenge you then have is how do you bring uh, a more a stronger state about it doesn't mean a bigger state necessarily but a stronger state that can work sensitively in a free market economy and that is some of the thinking that i think needs to be done but i think the, the public are crying out i think for more investment and for there to be a better functioning economy and they're not convinced that either of the office five parties are major parties are doing it right now do you think you talked about intervention often we frame this in terms of tax and spend investment and stuff but is there a place maybe for something where the parties can kind of meet halfway where the, you see the state intervening to kind of make the market work better for consumers rather than just divvying out money here that because I think there is a sense among a lot of people that they're getting kind of taken for a ride by companies who know the system, how the systems work better than they do, and there's this kind of, to use a wonkish term, informational asymmetry. Mm. Um, so may, would perhaps, they, I don't know, a beefed-up competition authority or, you know, something like that? Anything with teeth. Anything with teeth, yeah. Again, I think, it, I think it's the right area, but I think the architecture feels clunky to meet the scale of the challenge. So the energy price cap probably a nightmare into policy terms, but actually would play quite well. But there's a reason why any of these things have been quite difficult to implement because we've allowed, in a sense, those markets to be unregulated for a long period of time. And therefore, actually intervening is, is, is really, to do it in a really sensitive way that doesn't have adverse um, effects for, for low-income consumers is actually a really difficult enterprise. So, so I think we would be better off being able to say, what does a modern state look like that is, you know, is resourced, has a rightful role, but allows um, allows low-income consumers to get the best of the market without the worst sides of being unprotected by a lot of its bad sides? I mean, it's interesting. I think we're this like very interesting uh, debate about the size of the state and whether it is about size or about effectiveness and how smart it is. It's quite a, a Europe-centric view of the world, so. Support for free markets is booming across the rest of the developed world. And broadly, you can plot support for free market economics versus relative wage growth in the last 10 years. It forms a straight line. It's highly correlated. So if we were sat here doing CapEx India or CapEx Malaysia... Coming soon. Your question, yeah, your, your question would be, why does everyone suddenly love free market economics? And that's, that's the point. The West has been in relative decline. Median wages are... Have, are, are flatlining, the East is rising, living standards are falling in terms of relative terms in the West and a lot of public support for wanting a stronger state, a smarter state is a response to that because the generational stories of people who grew up in the 90s and, or the 80s would have been were richer than our parents whereas that's not the case now. So one of the things that comes out in public opinion polling is do you think your children will be richer than you? And the vast majority mm. of people do not think that. That is absolutely the driver 
behind all these attitudes about business, mm. about the state, about how much we should intervene. It, it, is, a, it is a sign of failure across the continent. And in talking about relative decline, we've managed to avoid mentioning Brexit until this point. But how, how, does, yeah. that, how does that play into this narrative, this, these stories about uh, how the state might change, the power that the, how the state might develop over the next 10 years? Does it play into it at all? The short-term answer to it, I suppose, and uh, I think at the moment it just plays out in terms of all the things that we could be doing as a country, whether it's state or not, that we're not doing because of Brexit and the sense that we need to kind of get past this deadlock in whatever form. The, the view that I would have is that, that whatever you think about uh, Brexit as a topic, it's, it's absolutely transformed what people talk about and the political priorities of this country. Uh, in a way, those priorities are now caught up with where they should have been before in that instance. So the fact that we're having you know, all the lots of fringe events across the country, lots of political events, lots of new policies, all in particular areas. I think what it is is a recalibration of uh, where the state and political attention is paid to. Um, and so in that, in that sense, I think it's had a big effect. Yeah, and I think something was... Get, there was, there was, there was there's, politically, there was so much going on. If you think that you know, Corbyn's election was before mm. the referendum, uh, you know, and then followed by kind of Trump and US, but the trends that we were talking about earlier in terms of uh, that James was referring to that are going on around Europe and around kind of social more d- democracy more generally, they were going to affect, affect us in one way or another... And however we understand the referendum, one of the ways of understanding the referendum is the eruption of all of that into British politics. The choice now is what do we do about it? And it's not just about what do we do about it uh, on the 31st of January before or after, but about whether we actually try and genuinely try and listen to what's been going on for millions of people for a long time where they feel locked out, they do not feel heard, uh, they do not feel that decisions have been made in their favour do do we try and take that seriously and try and advance a program that's going to speak to them and actually if people believe in the free market how can that be in a sense almost modified to be able to actually deliver well for people because there are people who feel that it has not delivered for them at all and are not uh, you know they are open to solutions on this now we would like to see a uh, a much more kind of common ground agenda that is advanced if we're going to put more money, and we should be putting more money into regions outside of London and the South East and tackle inequality and poverty in London and the South East, then that needs to be uh, through serious policies rather than things that are just done in the run-up to the election. So I'm, you know, I'm cheering on any announcements. The more billions they can, let's, let's try and outbid each other over the national living wage. But when push comes to shove, let's not look back in five, ta- five years' time and say we, we squandered the opportunity to transform these places and people's prospects because we were too busy just with the onward march of uh, you know, social liberalism. I mean, um, just to sort of finish off, we're, we're going to have the party's manifestos fairly soon. I mean, two questions. One is, what would you most like to see and what do you expect to see that maybe hasn't yet been part of the conversation? Mm. Interesting. Good I question. mean... Uh, in terms of most like to see, I would um, love to see something, a concrete plan on the productivity gap. I, I, it's quite wonkish, but actually I think... Vote big, vote winner. Uh, yeah, but that's very much, I did yeah. see that across posters across the country. Yeah. Uh, winning. Yeah. But when we think about why all these ruptures have happened, why is, why is the West in such a state of political volatility? It's because we produce 
less stuff uh, slower for less value. And, and because of that, living standards are declining because we live in a globalised system that leads to an allocation of scarce resource, right? This is, yeah. there's, a, there's a huge economic component to this. So whoever solves the productivity problem is, it, it holds, holds the keys. Is it sort of fair to say that is actually, in a way, is an expression of the other regional problem we've been talking about? Because productivity in London is better than it is in Germany. But outside, it's you know, significantly lower. I mean, this is a sort of a side point to that. I mean, Claire, what, what would you say from a sort of JRF point of view that you're hoping for in either party's manifesto? Uh, well, I have to be true to not saying it's about the architecture, it's about the actual outcomes. So uh, for me, it would be guarantees for uh, those places that we're talking about. So guarantees on what you're entitled to around um, training and skills, um, sort of a minimum floor on your social security and guaranteeing that goes up in line with inflation. Um, so I, but I would want that to be accompanied by radical devolution uh, as well, because whilst I don't think it's a vote winner in that sense, I think it is part of what has got to deliver a better balanced uh, country. What do you mean by that? Do you mean more metro mayors? Do you mean more fiscal powers for councils? bit of both? De- devolution of powers more 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 generally so being able to transform more transfer more powers and more responsibility out of uh, Whitehall down would through the regions mm-hmm. uh, Frank do you have any wish list no mine, yeah. would be, mine would be devolution too I, I yeah. think that's what yeah. we're trying to rejuvenate uh, the conversation I think there's a reason none of us have been asked to draft manifestos stop <laughs> 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 You've got yeah, a yeah. request for productivity and devolution. We've managed to not talk about housing for uh, the entire <laughs> thing, which yeah. is, um, yeah, scrap the, the Town land, and Country Planning Act. Act. That's my, uh, yeah, it's my big ask. Yeah, Land Reform Act. Yeah, but again, there, there are architecture points in a sense, although they are absolutely vital to the question, is how do we get away from all of that kind of terminology and actually translate it into what it, what's the vision of what we want to see? Yeah. And I want to see housing costs lowered for people who are on a low income. Yeah. Because ultimately, if we keep putting the national living wage up without doing that, we are just transferring money into the wrong place. And actually, it's still, in terms of people's pockets, not giving them what we should do by uh, increasing the national living wage. So... Actually, housing is completely central. It's just that it needs to be talked about in a way that actually is meaningful to people who are just finding it completely unaffordable. Mm-hmm. So, more houses, cheaper houses. That sounds good. And then an end to the rentier economy. There we go. <laughs> well, that's uh, I think something we can all agree on to uh, finish things off. Okay, guys, thank you very much indeed for joining us, and uh, catch us next time on Free Exchange. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.